0: 1 Peter three eighteen 18-22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would send us help this morning so that we may understand what it is you have revealed to us about yourself as Kevin preaches from your scriptures. Send us the Holy Spirit for power, both to Kevin to deliver accurately and to us to have ears to hear May it ignite holy worship towards you and bring glory to your great name. We ask this in the name of the risen Savior, Jesus. Amen.
1: Be seated. So, good morning, church. Good to see you guys here. If this is your first time, worship with... with, with, There we go. Good start. If this is your first time worshiping with us, welcome to Aletheia Church. We appreciate you guys being here. I'm Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, For those of you guys that are normals, as you can see, we got rid of a bunch of chairs this week because if you're wondering why we're so much smaller this Sunday, the students have left uh, for the week. So um, be nice for those of you clapping. (laughs) There would be no economy in this city if it weren't for that university. Please remember that. I, I just remember that. So here we go, Jackie. I'm already on a tangent. Sorry. Uh, the the university town I was a part of in Virginia, uh, Harrisonburg, Virginia, uh, uh, the church that I was sent out of, um, it was it was funny. Uh, the church uh, had a lot of college students in it as well, and uh, as more and more locals started coming in over the summers, they'd be, oh, I'm so glad the students are going. I'm like, you do realize you would not have a job. And this, this town would have like eight people in it if the <laughs> university wasn't here. So it's like, yes, I understand there are, there are nice things about when the students are gone. Like you can get down 34th Street in under 25 minutes. You know, those things are nice. But we also appreciate all that the university community brings here. And we're also really excited about the unique opportunity we have to pour into young people's lives um, and share, them, share with them the hope of Jesus Uh, as we have them here. So as a matter of fact, I want to take a moment before we we dive into the text this morning um, and just say this. uh, A lot of the students that attend our church who are gone this week are actually giving up their spring break week to serve Jesus on missions trips. And so um, some of them uh, are up in the panhandle doing disaster relief work uh, with the Florida Baptist Convention and with another church here in town along with the BCM. Uh, We've got students in Guatemala, Uh, doing trips uh, to take clean water uh, to to people in Guatemala and share the gospel. We've got people in Miami, uh, amongst other places. And so uh, what I would like us to do is to just take a a moment um, to pray for those students and the people leading those trips this week. And, 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 you know, we can just take a moment to pray silently in our seats, but will you pray that the the teams will be strengthened this week while they're there, that God will give them boldness to share the good news of the gospel uh, with those that they come in contact with, and that that we would see people come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So if you'll just pray silently in your seat for a couple minutes, and then I'll close us back out before we start. Thank you, guys. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, just the gift of prayer, that we can go to you, speak to you, hear from you, Lord, petition to you and ask you uh, to move, and God, as a pastor, I I confess that um, few things are more encouraging to me than seeing people uh, willingly give up uh, vacations and uh, their own personal time to serve you. And so uh, I thank you for the, the men and women who have, have given up this upcoming week to serve you in various ways. I pray for the team that's in the panhandle doing disaster relief work. Lord, as I was talking to somebody just a few weeks ago, uh, the amount of people uh, that we're seeing come to know you and have a personal relationship with you in the panhandle right now is just amazing. Uh, the work that you're doing through um, many, many different churches and many, many d- different denominations and expressions of the local church in the panhandle right now is just a beautiful testimony to you and your gospel. And I thank you for men and women who are laying down uh, weeks and weekends to go up there and just serve people and show people the love of Christ. I pray that you would use our team that's there this week, uh, that you will give them strength to do a lot of really, really difficult work of gutting houses and removing debris and re-roofing houses that haven't had a roof for going on four or five months. Uh, And that that in that, you would give them the opportunity to share why they're there, which is that their lives have been forever changed by the love of Jesus. I pray for the teams in Guatemala, Lord, that uh, you will give them uh, just an, an ability to love on the people that they're going to come in contact with, that you will give them clarity as they share the gospel. I pray for the teams that are in Miami uh, that are going to be doing outreach on the various campuses in the, and in the city itself, um, that you will send people to them that you've already been drawing to yourself, Lord, and that we will see uh, the beginnings, Lord, of, of, of a work that you're doing across this country and in the, in the lives of, of men and women who are far from you. And so... Lord, bless our time and the word this morning. Lord, may we remember to continue to pray for these teams throughout this week, uh, that there will be an impact made for you and your kingdom uh, because of this week. So, Jesus, we love you. Thank you that uh, these prayers (laughs) are, uh, according to my understanding, in accordance with your will and what you want from your word. And so, Lord, use these men and women who have given up their weeks to serve you, and we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. So, um, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn over to First Peter chapter three. Uh, we're going to be finishing up that chapter this morning, and uh, the, the the text uh, this morning actually builds upon uh, what we talked about last week. And, and last week, Peter tried to encourage uh, the churches that he was writing to on how they could both cope with and view suffering, and so you know what he was. What he was trying to do is these churches uh, they, they weren't quite facing the level of rejection that the church probably would face in another 20 or 30 years. Uh, once Nero came into power that's where the church really started facing uh, a lot of martyrdom and a lot of very serious persecution. Uh, but we—but the, the churches that uh, Peter is writing to in particular, which would be around modern-day Turkey, were facing the rejection of family and friends and commerce. Uh, they were losing businesses, and so they, they were going through a difficult time, and they were really struggling with how do we reconcile the hope that we have in Jesus with the uh, practical suffering that we're currently facing in our everyday lives. And, and so we saw four things that Peter kind of mentioned to them uh, last week on, on how they can kind of cope with and view their suffering and how can they could can actually be encouraged by it. And, and those were these four things, right? He said that, that suffering strengthens fellowship, and what he said there was that suffering frequently leads to a unity and a growth of fellowship amongst those who suffer together, and his point being that, hey, as a church, as you walk through this together, build those bonds as a family and as a church together so you might suffer well together and be encouraged together with the hope that you have in Christ, He went on to say that not only did suffering create fellowship and unity, but that suffering is really our calling. Right? And I mentioned last week that if you were trying to create a religion that would control people, that Christianity would be the worst possible religion you could ever think up to make up on your own, because Jesus says throughout the Gospels, right, if you want to be my follower, sell everything you own right, and follow me, or take up your cross and lay down your life for my cause. No one would create a religion or a way to control people with those being the major taglines from your leader, right? And yet millions of people over the years have followed Jesus faithfully and been willing to do this because their lives have been radically changed by the good news of what Jesus has done. And so the point that Peter wanted to make to these churches was, hey, look, as followers of Christ, you signed up for this. You signed up to suffer well for the cause of Christ. Now, that doesn't diminish suffering. That doesn't mean to say that we look at suffering and say, oh, it doesn't matter, or hey, like, who cares what's happened?' no. Peter very much so wants to embrace and suffer well together, but also remind them, this is what we signed up for. That this is part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, The third point that he made was, hey, look, there there are things far worse than suffering on earth, and that's eternity separated from God. You know, and we we tend to, in 2019, not to want to talk about hell a whole lot. It's not a very popular uh, subject to bring up, you know, I've never once been in a social setting or at a party where someone's like, hey, let's talk about hell. Like, never once has that been brought up. But the reality is, is that Jesus talks about hell quite a few times throughout the Gospels. And the reality is, is that he both believed that it was a real place, and it was a place that people were going to go if they did not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Right? And so Peter's point as he was talking to them last week in the section of the Scripture that we looked at was, hey, look, I, I recognize that suffering is difficult and hard to walk through, but it's nothing compared to eternity separated from God. Right? And we can both mourn over suffering and suffer well together, knowing that, hey, <laughs> it's nothing compared to eternity. Right? And then the last point we saw this, and maybe the point we really wanted to drive home last week, was that suffering creates mission. And what we mean by that is if you are walking through a season of difficulty, right? Whether you're suffering with cancer, or your family's rejecting you, or uh, there's a lot of fighting and turmoil, or you're in a workplace that's not uh, what I would say accepting of a follower of Jesus and and you're constantly kind of being ridiculed or whatever it may be, that God frequently uses those moments and those opportunities to display his glory to an unbelieving world. I say all the time, and I use this example a lot, but my pastor up in Virginia who lost his son at five weeks, when he came into church and declared that God was better than losing his five-week-old son, we saw dozens of people give their lives to Christ that morning. Because there's something about finding your hope and rest in Christ that declares to an unbelieving world, Jesus is better. Right? And so Peter's point was, even if you were to suffer now unjustly, right, that God uses that to display the glories and excellencies of Christ to an unbelieving world. And so this morning, Peter is going to share kind of one more thought to add to those four points that we looked at last week. And kind of this fifth point that he's going to bring up is this. Suffering is helps us to learn and be more like Jesus. That that's how he's going to finish up chapter three. Maybe maybe to put it another way, Peter is going to show us that suffering uniquely allows us to relate to and learn from the life of Christ. That by following his example, we will both be encouraged in our suffering, but also hopeful hopeful for future vindication that comes only in him. That, That we can face suffering trials rejection humiliation that we can face those things hopeful because of the future hope that comes with our vindication in Christ now I have to give a disclaimer this morning Uh, the text that we're going to look at this morning is one of the most difficult that I have ever had to preach Um, This is a very, very difficult passage of Scripture. I think I spent more time reading commentaries on this passage than I have in quite some time in preparation for a sermon. Um, John Calvin noted in his commentary that I was reading, uh, preparing this week, that uh, when he was looking at uh, verse 18 and verse 19, he says, But as the obscurity of this passage has produced, as usual, various explanations, I shall first disprove what has been brought forward by some, And secondly, we shall seek its genuine and true meaning. That's what he says when kind of embracing these two passages. He goes on to give a theory that that I'm not going to share right now. But in the next line, in verse 20, he gives this. He says, verse 20, though, gives great difficulty to my own interpretation. Right? Meaning, right, as we look at the text this morning, right, some of our most famous theologians give their opinion on the text and then immediately say afterwards, but the text makes my own interpretation very difficult, <laughs> right? And so as, as I read and studied this week and all I could think of when I was reading that, I was like, thanks a lot, John. You know, like, <laughs> why even write your thoughts if you say, ah, but the text kind of disproves my, my opinion on this, <laughs> right? But the reality is, is that this text is going to be, this, d- be difficult this morning. So um, there will be times where I'm probably going to seem a little bit uh, more in teacher mode, this morning, as we as we look at the text, but hopefully we'll still take home the main points that I think Peter wants us to see, and which I think there's another four things that we can see and learn from uh, in the life of Christ when it comes to suffering. So the first one is this in verse 18. He said, uh, Peter says this: For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. And so this kind of this first point that that Peter is making is that we can learn from Jesus' own example of suffering on how we might suffer well. That Jesus himself suffered for our sake unjustly and that we can learn from that and be encouraged in that. Uh, One of the points I mentioned over the last several weeks is that suffering has a unique ability— to press us closer to Jesus. And and what I mean by that is whether it's family or relational suffering or physical or emotional suffering through no fault of your own, that Peter makes one thing pretty clear here in verse 18. Think about Jesus as you walk through those seasons. Reflect on his goodness and his ability to suffer on your behalf in those seasons, right? He says that for Christ also suffered once for sin. See, the point that, that Peter is making here is, hey, look, Jesus suffered greatly, maybe far greater than any of us ever have. If you, if you think through this, God can and does relate to our sufferings. But most importantly, he, rel- he relates with our unjust suffering. If you think upon the life of Christ, and I, I want to share a story with you before, before we reflect on this. But when I was in uh, Harrisonburg, uh, my last year of college, um, one of, the, one of the, the women in our ministry at Campus Crusade at the time led a Jewish girl to Christ. And I remember she started attending our church and it wasn't long before she took some of us aside and said, I really need you guys to pray with, for me. I'm going home this weekend and I'm really, really worried about how my parents are gonna respond to hearing this news. And so uh, she went home that weekend and she, she called us on Sunday on her drive back and she was just in tears. I mean, she was just distraught. Um, and her parents had told her, how dare you bring shame on our family in this way? How dare you? Uh, they, they had called her rabbi and brought her rabbi over to, to try to dissuade her from following Christ. And her parents had said to her on Sunday before she got in the car to go, go back, if you continue to follow Christ, we will disown you and you will be on your own for the rest of your life. So the cost of discipleship was great for her. It cost her her family. And I think these are the, these are the situations that some people face each and every day. And we might look at that and say, how unjust of her family to do that, right? How unfair is that? How unjust of her family to, to go that way? How can God relate with that, right? Because one of the things I found fascinating as we were sitting there on Monday morning, she came and a few of us prayed with her on Monday morning As my pastor looked at her and said, Jesus knows what you're going through, right? And what he meant by that is Jesus was rejected by his own earthly family during his time of ministry, As he came to the end of his ministry, he was rejected by his closest friends. And even more so than that, right, as he was tried unjustly by the Jewish Sanhedrin and then Pontius Pilate, right, he was then rejected by even his closest followers, including Peter, who was probably his right hand man. That here, Jesus, as he's walking towards. Uh, physical suffering and pain and enduring the cross also has to face the emotional suffering of being rejected by his family, friends, and closest ministry partners. And Peter's saying to us here, Jesus understands. Look to him and trust the same way that Jesus did to walk towards the Father's will for your life because it's better even in the midst of suffering. See that Jesus understands this type of suffering, and I, I don't want us to miss or 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 uh, maybe uh, glance over this point. Jesus understands this far better than even we could, because our sin and rejection of God is what sent Jesus to the cross in the first place. Our rejection of the Father led to Christ willingly suffering in our place. As Peter says there, the righteous for the unrighteous. See, God did this to save us. When you suffer, Peter says, learn from Jesus' example that suffering can save. Look to Jesus and remember him. And that will drive you to find hope. That you can suffer well and glorify God the Father the way that Christ did. That there's great hope to be found because when Jesus suffered, many were saved. And this goes on to the point that we looked at last week, that our suffering can drive mission and we can be encouraged to look at him in our suffering. Now the second point he's going to make here in these verses is he's going to say Jesus' death teaches us to suffer well. So not only does Jesus' own suffering encourage us to suffer well, but he's also going to encourage us that we can look to Jesus' own crucifixion and death to encourage us in our suffering as well. Look at verses 18 through twenty. Because buckle up, we're getting ready to go. Right? Anybody else read those verses and they're like, "What in the world?" Right? I think there's. I think it's important to pause here for a moment and just say that. Hey, sometimes Scripture can be difficult to interpret and understand. Amen. Right now, one of the things I find pa- fascinating is if you read later in Peter's letter, he says, "Hey, sometimes Paul's difficult to understand." He mentions that in his letters. Uh, excuse me. Did you read what you wrote? <laughs> Right? So Peter, what Peter is saying here is a difficult interpretive challenge for us. Um, Now, I think the first thing I want to do is I just want to put out there that it's important that anytime you're approaching a difficult passage of Scripture, that it's important to have what we call a good biblical hermeneutic. And what I mean by that is just a way to approach difficult passages, uh, to study them the same way that we would study other passages of Scripture. Otherwise, what happens is you end up doing what the cults have done in the past, which you get to a difficult passage of Scripture, and then you end up creating an entire set of doctrines and beliefs based off one verse, Right, which leads to then confusion and all sorts of chaos. Right? And so I would say here, right, the biblical her- hermeneutic that we try to use when we approach Scripture is fourfold. Right, It's literal, grammatical, historical, and contextual. And what I mean by that is that most of the time when you're reading Scripture, when you are reading that literature, if you understand it to be, for, for example, a letter that Peter is writing to churches, that we would l- take the words that Peter says literally. That those things literally happened. Now I know this becomes a little more difficult when you start start approaching apocalyptic literature like the Book of Revelation. But most of uh, Scripture can be taken very literally. That the the writers wrote this and they meant what they were writing. It wasn't allegorical. Now the second one, right, historical, is we try to understand what the author is saying in the confines of what's going on historically at that time, right? Which is why I've been. Uh, bemoaning and, and sharing with you over and over and over again the context and the historical background of what these churches were facing at this time because I want us to understand what those churches would have been thinking when they were reading Peter's letter to them, right? The, the third point is we say grammatical, and what that means is, believe it or not, the Bible was not originally written in King James Version English, right? It was actually written originally in Greek, Hebrew, and some Aramaic, And so when we come to difficult passages, sometimes it's important for us to go back to the original languages and see what the original language says so that we might better understand, right, what the authors were saying. Lastly, right, contextually, and I think this is oftentimes the most overlooked uh, hermeneutic and biblical exposition, Right, where someone reads a verse and they're like, oh man, that verse is really difficult, and then they end up creating an entire belief set around that verse, whereas if they would just read the paragraph that that sentence is in, they would better understand what the author was trying to communicate. Right, And so we're going to attempt to do that this morning. And like I said earlier, I read no less than 25 different commentaries or or study Bibles on this particular section this past week, Uh, and they all seem to have a different take, every one of them. There may be some overlap here and there, but all of them had a different take. And there were some that I agreed with in part as I read through this. There were some that I rejected wholeheartedly. Um, I'll give you my take on what Peter is trying to say, but I will say this. If I give you my explanation of what I see going on here and you're walking away, I do not agree with you. Okay. Like, that's fine. I, I, if you want to talk about it in depth at some point, we can. But this is certainly, for me anyway, an open-handed issue where we could say, hey, we can agree to disagree maybe on what Peter is trying to communicate here to these various churches. And so I want to, I want to take a couple of key words in these verses uh, out and just put them before you because they're super important to understanding the flow. And then I'm going to address each one of those key, key, verse, uh, key words because I think it'll help us better kind of break down what Peter's trying to say, right? So he says there that, that we're being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit in reference to Jesus, right? So we're going we're gonna to touch on that and make sure we understand that. Uh, it says this, that he went and proclaimed to the spirits that were in prison. We'll, we'll address that, I promise. Uh, he brings up Noah. Not entirely sure why. I think I, I think I know why, but I'm not entirely sure why. Noah just seems to come out of nowhere in this passage. Uh, and then he, then he talks about while the ark was being prepared, right, that God was patient, and then he only ended up saving eight people. And I'll get to why um, he's sharing that as well. But anybody confused yet? Okay, good. A few of you are honest. The rest of you are so confused you couldn't even raise your hand, I think. Okay. So, what I think Peter is going to be getting at overall here is that that we can learn about suffering from viewing the mission of Jesus Christ even in his death. I think that's kind of the overarching idea of what Peter is getting at in these verses. Now, remember, right, in John 19 30, right, these are Jesus' final words on the cross, right? He he goes to the cross, and, and when you get to verse 30, look at what he says. I'm actually going to start in verse 28, but he says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And so, well, we need to understand, and Peter even mentions this there, that Christ suffered once and for all, right? That, that what happens is when Jesus went to the cross and suffered, that he fully took on the wrath of God for your sin and for mine. For all those who are in Christ, Jesus fully took on the wrath of God so that our payment for our sins would be paid, Right, so what Peter is, is getting at here is we need to first and foremost remember that the wrath of God was fully satisfied in Jesus' death, meaning that in his suffering, in Christ's suffering on the cross, great hope came from that. That, that God's wrath was satisfied, right? It's, uh, it's what Martin Luther referred to as the great exchange was going on in that moment, that, that Jesus was taking on our wrath and giving to us his righteousness by going to the cross. Now, after this, we know the story, right? Jesus is crucified, and then afterwards, he's what? Buried, right? He's buried, and he's in the ground, dead for three days. And for thousands of years historians and theologians have argued what was going on during those three days, right? Some of you guys may have even grown up in a church background where you would recite the Apostles' Creed uh, on Sunday mornings, right? And some of you guys, like I remember going to a different church growing up, and they said a different Apostles' Creed even than my church, Right? And one of the things they would say towards the end of that is that they believed that he descended into hell. My church didn't share that particular line of the creed. And so what ended up happening was it was there's this disagreement amongst the churches on what exactly was occurring during those three days in the ground. Now let me just say this. The scripture seems to be fairly silent on this. So if anyone tells you with 100% certainty that they know exactly what was going on during those three days, run. Because the Bible is not very clear and doesn't seem to spend a ton of time on it. But this is one of those instances where it is brought up. That in this passage here, it says that Jesus went and and declared victory to the spirits who were in prison during that three-day period. Right, And so Peter mentions this, and so I want us to turn over to Luke chapter 16 and give you an example of what I think Peter might be referring to here uh, in in his letter. Starting in verse 19, and we're going to be reading quite a bit here, so just bear with me, but I want to read the whole story because I want you to understand this idea of what might be going on here. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses... And the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And a little little bit of prof- prophetic <laughs> words there, right, in this story. So here is what we need to kind of understand and know what is going on, right? Uh Jews kind of had this basic belief that when they died, they went to this place called Sheol. Sometimes it was called Hades, but it was kind of like a a holding place, right, for those who uh, had had not gone on to be with God yet. Okay. And so that seems to be, right, where this rich man has gone, right? Now, what also occurred during the Old Testament, right, if you read some of the Old Testament stories, right, is when uh, Satan and his angels uh, rebelled against God, some of them were cast out into prison, right? And so I, I, I believe from the text here that who Peter is officially referring to is actually the fallen angels who were cast out of heaven and sent into prison or into Hades, right? That's the biblical understanding of what happened to them. Now, this place of holding where this final judgment is occurring does not refer to this future judgment and return of Christ from my understanding of eschatology, right? But, but what we see here is that there are people there, but that more importantly, what Peter's getting at is that there are these fallen angels here who think that they have had victory over God because Christ has died. That's the understanding here. But, right, right? What Peter seems to be saying is that in Jesus' death, not only was sin paid for once and for all, but Jesus then, in his death, went into this place to declare to the fallen angels, hey, God's defeated you. Once and for all, you have been defeated. If you turn over to Colossians chapter 2, I think that's kind of what Paul's getting at when he writes to them, Right, he says in Colossians chapter two, let me turn over there in my in my Bible real quick. But he says in Colossians chapter two, verse fourteen and fifteen, right? He says this. When he's talking about Jesus on the cross, he says, by canceling out the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, right? He's referring to the same exact thing that Peter's referring to, that sin's been paid for once and for all. And he set aside, nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put to open shame by trying up over them in him. Meaning that in Christ, in his death, that those who rebelled against God the Father, including those fallen angels, were put to open shame in Christ's death. That God put them to shame. And so here's what Peter's saying. I believe (laughs) that Jesus suffered, died, and in his death, declared his victory over sin and death to the spirits that were in prison. I don't think Jesus went to hell, right? I don't know where exactly he was. (laughs) Could have been in that chasm. I don't know, right? Scripture doesn't seem to let me know. But that what was going on is that he was declaring finally, hey, sin's been paid for. You guys are done. It's finished, The the appointed time has come. God has said it before an eternity past that this time would come. It has come. You've been defeated. Your power and your reign and your rule are over. Anybody tired yet? Because then he brings up Noah. Right, we have this super confusing passage where he's like, hey, Jesus went and declared to fallen angels that, that he had defeated sin and death. And all of a sudden he's like, hey, and remember Noah? What? Like, what? like, what? Why are we talking about Noah all of a sudden? Right? But look at what he says. He says this. He says, Because they formerly did not obey, referring to the angels and the fallen spirits, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, again, I read this, I'm like, what in the world? I thought I was following you, and then all of a sudden you're talking about, no, I don't know what you're doing here, right? But remember the context of what Peter's talking about big picture, right? He's talking about big picture suffering in the midst of persecution, right? And what he's, what he's reminding his readers of is, hey, it's okay to suffer in the midst of persecution because remember what Christ did for you in his death, right? And then he's moving on here, right, in verse 19 and verse 20, to say, hey, remember Noah? Like, he can relate with your suffering as well. He knows full-blown what it means to suffer. Now, some of you guys have been around long enough to have heard me rant and rave about the story of Noah and how I hate the way the church often presents this, especially this story in particular. I mean, guys, I mean, even when we were in the next-door building, what what did we paint on the wall for the kids? Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark. Right, guys, Noah's Ark is the story about God obliterating the human race, except for eight people. And I always love that. We're like, let's tell the kids about that time that God wiped out the human race. Because there's some animals. <laughs> and a rainbow at the end. Right, and even stories that like kind of get it right still make me mad because they present Noah as the hero of the story. Guys, Noah is not the hero of the story of Noah look look at Genesis chapter six with me he says this starting in verse five the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was on only evil continually anybody like really happy to be a, a human being yet right then he says this in verse six and this is one of the most <laughs> Hard things to stomach. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens for I am sorry that I have made them. You guys ever been around for one of my rants on hey, you're not just a person that does some bad things but you're... D- Way more wicked than you think you are. This is what we're talking about. Right, that the wickedness of man is far greater than we would dare believe, especially in light and comparison to a holy God. But then there's verse eight. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so here you have God's saying, man is wicked, and I'm going to blot them out. What does it say about Noah? He found favor. Notice what it doesn't say. Hey, Noah, on the other hand, was this really, really good dude in the midst of all these other really, really bad men and women. You know what that word favor is in Hebrew? It's the same word for grace that's used in the New Testament. God chose Noah despite his wickedness. God chose to save him, and Noah's favor is undeserved grace from God, not based upon his own merit. And so when you get to verse 20, right, you see then, right, Peter trying to remind us of the rest of the story in the book of Noah. He's like, hey, look, you guys are deceptively wicked, right? And the people who are persecuting you, church, are also desperately wicked. Yet Noah found favor with God because God chose to show grace to him despite his wickedness. And God chose you, church, to show his favor to as well, even though you did not deserve it. And guess what? In the same way that in Christ's death, you are saved, so Noah and his family were saved in the ark. Jesus is the better ark. And that what, if you guys know anything about the story of the book of Noah, right? Noah built this ark in the middle of a desert, if you understand the measurements that are put out in the book of Genesis, it was roughly the size of a common everyday battleship that our Navy would have. If you follow the timeline, it took him 120 years to, from start to completion to build that thing. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if you were sitting in the middle of a desert, a place that rarely gets rain, and you see this guy making a huge battleship out of gopher wood in the middle of a place where it gets no rain, what are you going to think? This guy's got some issues. I think maybe we need to get him to see a counselor. There's there's definitely something going on here. And yet if you read the story in the Genesis account, what did Noah do over and over and over again during that 120 years? God has told me judgment is coming. You must repent. You must believe. You can help me build the ark. We're gonna be saved. God's gonna flood and destroy the whole world. And all he received during that 120 years was mocking and scorning, and rejection, and persecution. Until what? Until the rain started to fall, and God's judgment came. And so I think what Peter is saying here is in our suffering, when we look to Jesus' death, we see him as our ark. And like Noah, We preach to unrepentant sinners. We preach that God's judgment is coming. And just like in Noah's day, as we preach and beg of those around us to trust in Christ and and to give their lives to him, we are mocked and scorned and rejected. But God will judge. And when he comes, there will be no second chances just like there was no second chance when the rains began to come. And as the rains came in Noah's day and the ark floated and everyone else died, when Jesus returns, only those who are found to be in Christ will be safe from the judgment that is to come. Church family, hear me on this. We should be given over to getting this message out and standing in the face of persecution that Jesus is the only way to to be relieved from the impending wrath of God for our sin. Jesus is the better ark. And we call upon the world to give their sin to Jesus to trust in him, to protect them in the coming judgment because one day God is coming. Church, we are like Noah in the desert waiting on the impending judgment that one day will come. And as we suffer persecution for proclaiming Jesus, we look to his death because it is in his death that we are safe from the judgment of God and the persecution of man. In Him and Him alone are we safe. Anybody else tired yet? Want to be done? Because we have a few more verses to get through here. All right? Peter says that we can learn to suffer from Christ's own example of suffering. That we can learn to suffer from Christ's death and we can learn to suffer well and then he says in verse 21 that we can learn to suffer well because of Christ's resurrection. Look what he says in verse 21 of 1st Peter chapter 3. Baptism which corresponds to this now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, what what Peter's trying to communicate there is this. Suffering will come to an end, eventually. And the Father promises this and displays it to us in the resurrection of Christ. That as Jesus suffered and died, he also rose again. And we look to Jesus and the promise of his return to know that one day he will set all things right. We'll be given new resurrected bodies. There will be no more sin, no more pain, no more cancer, no more suffering, just knowing and worshiping Jesus for eternity. But he says this, that baptism corresponds to this and that it now saves you. Anybody ready for lesson number two on difficult things Peter's saying? <laughs> right, here, here's what I think Peter's trying to get at. Um, first and foremost, we would say this. Baptism demonstrates publicly what has already occurred inwardly in the life of a follower of Jesus. That we are buried into Christ, dead to our sins, and raised out of the waters to show that we've been raised to new life in Jesus, and that our hope is firmly placed in him and him alone. So the point of baptism, or the point of water baptism within a a local church, and why churches uh, observe baptism is that it's to display what God has already done internally in the life of a follower of Christ. And so when Peter says here that baptism saves, let me just stop us for a moment because this, this is one of those passages that uh, certain denominations and cults use right, to throw out right this theological position that they might hold on the importance of baptism and how baptism saves us. Um, Let me start by saying this. What I'm referring to commonly is referred to theologically as baptismal regeneration. And what they mean by that is someone is unregenerate or does not truly know God until they've been baptized in water. That you're not really saved until you've been water baptized. This is why I say context is super important. One, has Peter been referring to the theology of baptism in this entire context of this passage? No. The context of the passage is suffering, meaning deriving an entire theology of baptism from one line within a paragraph about suffering is probably not a great hermeneutic. But this also is important to understand the context of what Peter's talking about, which he's referring to what? The flood. Right? Now let me ask you guys this. What saved Noah and his family from the flood? Was it the water? No. Right. It was the ark. Right? They passed through the flood waters. Right? Meaning that baptism displays a passing of judgment in Christ and coming out safe because of his death and resurrection. Right? What happens is, is people read this verse and they start getting this weird theology. they like, oh, the water saves us. If you've ever been baptized at lathe, or you've seen a baptism at lathe, there is nothing special about that water, I assure you. We've baptized people in pools. I got baptized in a hot tub on an 18-degree night in Virginia. Everyone else was standing around freezing watching me get baptized. I'm in that water. I'm like, this is great. The moment I got out, my jeans were frozen, not even joking. I ran to the house to change. If you've been baptized here, we baptize you guys in a really, really holy and beautiful horse trough <laughs> that comes directly from the spigot outside, which I believe is Gainesville water, which I have no idea exactly where that comes from, but I trust our city. Maybe I shouldn't, I don't know. Right? Nothing special about that water. right? And the thing I say every time when we baptize someone here is we are showing Or putting on display what God has already done internally in that person's life. That he has saved them, that he has cleansed them, and that they are in him. Now, some of you guys may be sitting there like, I don't know, Kevin. Like, it says baptism saves. All right, look at the next line. Because this should be enough to get us to know that he's for sure not talking about water baptism. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, he's referring to his example of Noah, now saves you. But then look at what he says. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but what? As an appeal to God for a good conscience. Here's what he's saying. Water baptism is not what saves you. What saves you is baptism into Christ, and water baptism is a visual representation of that. Paul says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Right? That when we're baptized, we're baptized into Christ. And that is what saves us, being baptized into Christ. And guys, let me tell you something. That happens at the moment you believe. There's no special uh, thing that you have to do. There's no uh, special um, uh, ritual that you have to observe Right, water baptism, actually, guys, is an act of obedience because Jesus asks us to do it. And Jesus saved us, which is what we've seen clearly from the text here this morning. I just think it's a good idea to listen to Jesus. So I would just say this. Baptism does not save, but it is, however, an important act of obedience. If you have not been baptized, or, were, or let me say this, or you were baptized as a child, I would encourage you to be baptized. We would love to baptize you here. We'd love to do it. Some of you guys are like, ah, I know, but like, I grew up in a Presbyterian church, and they told me about my baptism as a kid. If you would love to sit down and talk about me, about why we don't hold that position, I would love to sit down and tell you why my Presbyterian brothers and sisters are wrong. Would love to do it, right? Spent a lot of time studying it, right? If, however, you're like, no, no, I I agree. I, I agree with their position. We can agree to disagree on that one. But I want you to have been baptized. If you haven't been baptized, you're a newer believer, you need to get baptized. This is one of the last things Jesus said. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them na- in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Right? It's important. Okay, So see me after service if you were either dunked as a kid, like I was, Guys, it's okay. I was baptized as a kid. My parents took me out in the Methodist church and they had that really cute, it kind of looked like this, baptismal font and had a, like, you know, had a cross on top of it because the water was only good if it had that. And my parents put me in that really cute white dress that everyone wears. That's right, guy, white dress. And they sat me there and, you know, and they took the water and they kind of sprinkled it over my head and they held me in front of the church. Right? And then 20 some years later, I actually came to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior and I was baptized again. It's okay. Some of you guys are like, I think my parents might be upset if I do that. Come talk to me. I can talk to you all about having parents who are upset with you and sign to baptize again. Then you can call my parents if you want, and they can tell you, yeah, it's cool, it's fine. We got got over it. It's cool. Kevin explained to me that my church was wrong growing up. It's okay. (laughs) Just joking. All right. We face suffering hopeful because of the resurrection, because we know that our suffering now is not the final say. And lastly, what Peter shares with the churches here is is he says, look to the ascension of Christ for your hope and suffering. Look what he says in verse 22. Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Guys, Jesus is not dead, the grave is empty, and Jesus is not here anymore. He sits at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. Powers have been subjected to him, and church, Jesus is in heaven, ruling and reigning. Nothing happens on this earth without him knowing about it. Nothing happens on this earth without him first allowing it to happen. This means that even in your suffering, it is appointed by God and vindication will come. Peter says, look to him so you might suffer well. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to invite the band back up on stage. I can get somebody to turn the lights off for me. And here's what, I, here's what I'm going to ask us to do. I'm going to ask us to respond to the call of Peter to look to Jesus. To look and respond to Jesus. I, I don't know where everyone in this room is this morning. Some of you guys are in, in the midst of really, really great seasons. Things are going well at work. Your family's doing great. Your neighbors love you. Uh, like You're just like, man, like, blessings are just pouring out everywhere. It's awesome. It's a great time to be alive. I'm happy to hear that. Some of you guys are here this morning and you're like, I hate my job. My boss is miserable. My neighbors hate me. My family won't, doesn't want to be around me. I've got health problems. And you're facing a season of extreme suffering. I invite you to turn and share that with somebody. Share it with somebody in this church so we can be there for you, that we can pray and petition to God to strengthen you during this season. But if you're suffering here this morning or you know that someone that is suffering, look to Jesus. Jesus who suffered unjustly for our sake. Jesus who died for our sin and declared his victory over whose enemies,
0: Jesus who
1: rose again to offer new life and hope, and Jesus who is now reigning and ruling and sovereign over all things. Do you know Have you placed your trust in Him? Not in your job, not in your health, not in your education, not in your social clout? Not on how, well, how well you're accepted by others, Is your hope in Him? I pray that you would sit here and you would turn your life over to him trusting him in all things and as we've seen this morning he knows he relates and he loves no one loves you like Jesus and if you're a Christian here this morning I ask that you would come up and you would take communion and what we do when we take communion is we are identifying that Christ's own flesh and blood were poured out for us so that the wrath of God might be satisfied and we might have new hope and new life in him if you if you do not know Jesus as lord and savior today is the day today is the day to repent of your sin tell God that you are sorry, and to give it over to him, and to trust that when Jesus went to the cross, he paid for all your sins, past, present, and future. And then you can come up here for the first time and take communion, celebrating that Jesus's own flesh and blood was poured out for you, and you can do so worshipfully and joyfully, because that's what God did for you. Father, I thank you that Jesus suffered in my place. Of his own volition, he went to the cross for my sake. Jesus, if there's anyone in here this morning that does not know you, that does not know that you came and died, our sake not just for some sins but for all sins that if we simply repent and place our trust in you you are faithful that you promise in your word that you have begun a good work in us that we are a new creation and that you who have begun a good work in us will see it through to the day of Christ Jesus Reveal yourself to them now, God, and save them. And Father, for those of us in here who are already followers of you, may we never grow tired of gazing to you for our hope. Father, no matter what we're facing, may we look to you in your life, death, burial, and resurrection, and your ascension to know that we can trust you. Jesus, you are worthy of our worship. Our honor and all glory are given to your name. Help us to do that.